In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My dear sisters and brothers in Christ, I wish I had said something. You ever been in a situation like that? Some of the biggest regrets in my life, I think, can be traced back to that one statement. I wish I had said something. A friend came to you, someone was hurting or lost, someone was suffering, and they were looking for a word of advice or encouragement. They were entrusting and confiding in you some darkness in their life or some weakness that they had. And there you stood, speechless, helpless, unhelpful. I wish I had said something. But I didn't. Or there's the different but very closely related, I wish I had something to say. You want to say something. You're, you're ready to talk. You're, you're ready to engage and to save the day. But you reach down deep looking for the words to actually say and you come up empty. There's nothing there. I need to say something. I want to say something. But for the life of me, I don't know what that something is. I wish I had something to say to you. But I don't. I think we've all probably been there, haven't we? And probably more times than we care to remember, but I'm going to ask you to try this morning. To try and remember some of those times. Line as many of them up as you can recall and look at them side by side and tell me what do they all have in common other than the fact that you were left without anything to say. I mean, what was it that left you speechless? What was it that caused you to dig and dive deep into your soul and to come up empty? I'd be willing to bet that most, if not all of them, had something to do with exactly what we've been talking about this morning. Death. Because what do you say to death? What do you say when you're looking into the face of this undefeated champion? I'm sorry for your loss. Let me know if you need anything. Yeah, I need my loved one back. So what do you say when it's time to have a word with death? And here's what you and I need to not only understand this morning, but here is what you and I need to be so exceedingly confident of. That as Christians, 
as believers in and followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, we not only have something to say in the face of death, but we have the best things to say in the face of death. In fact, I would contend with the full support of Scripture behind me that this is the whole point and purpose of the Christian faith. It is to give you something to say in the presence of death. Think about it. When God told Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what did He promise would be the sad, lasting effects? Jesus didn't say, don't eat from that tree or else you are going to have to suffer with a crippling recession. God did not say, don't eat from that tree because when you do, you will be homeless, even though they would be. No, you see, those are problems, but they're not the problem. They're not the problem that necessitated the life of God's only Son. No. God said when you eat of it, you will die. Because that's the problem. That is our problem. That is the problem. And that is why Jesus comes. Isn't this what we saw in our Gospel reading from Luke chapter 7? You talk about a situation that leaves you speechless. I don't even know that we can begin to fully appreciate the awkward silence and tension of this situation. Luke tells us that Jesus and His disciples were approaching the city gate of a town called Nain. It's up in the area of Galilee where Jesus conducted most of his ministry, just south actually of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. And we're told there that it wasn't just Jesus and his 12 disciples, but that a large crowd went along with him. Now think throughout Jesus' ministry to what some of those large crowds were like, some of those numbers that the Bible gives us and I don't think it's out of the question to think that this large crowd following Jesus was in the hundreds, possibly even in the thousands of people. And as they enter this city, they realize they're not the only crowd that was gathering at the city gate of Nain that day. A funeral procession was exiting the city at the same time that Jesus and His disciples and His large crowd were trying to enter it. And Luke tells us that this wasn't just some nameless, faceless corpse. No, He gives us this insight, this beautifully tender description of this particularly tragic obituary. Luke tells us that he was the only son of his mother and she was a widow. And if you've ever lived in a small town that experienced the death of a child, then maybe you can begin to grasp 
the immensity of this situation for that town. This is why Luke tells us that a large crowd was with the widow too. No one in that town was missing this funeral. Can you picture the scene? Two massive crowds of people moving closer to one another. Two crowds with two very different attitudes and two very different destinations. One of them is going to have to give way to the other. One of them is going to have to step aside. And you and I have long-standing traditions that tells us which one it will be. Traditions that we still follow today. If you're driving down the road and a funeral procession starts coming toward you or coming up behind you, what do you do? You get out of the way. You, you, you take off your hat. You say a prayer. We do this not just out of respect for someone we don't know. We do this out of respect just for death. Because what else do you do? Because in a rather profound way, the story of history is really little more than the account of the procession of death. The funeral procession that began in the Garden of Eden and has continued its march undefeated across every continent and throughout every generation. And we've all marched in it, haven't we? we we've all been there to be a part of that, that procession, that parade, as we mourn the death of a family member or a friend. And this is why you and I know who it should have been to step aside when those two funeral or those two processions met outside the city of Nain. Jesus, his disciples, his large crowd of people, they should have been the ones to make way for death. And I think, in fact, probably the disciples and the crowd probably did. They probably saw that coffin elevated at the head of that large crowd of people. They probably heard the wailing from a mile away. They probably saw the mother hunched over, barely even able to walk, and they said, out of respect, let's get out of the way. But not Jesus. Jesus just stands there. He stands there right in the middle of the road, right in the middle of the gate. Refusing to move. And you can picture the confused look on the pallbearers, can't you? What is this guy doing? Get out of the way. And then their confusion when they realize that Jesus isn't just clueless, but that he's adamantly standing there, not giving way, they start to get upset. The people in the back of the crowd have no idea why they're bumping into the people in front of them. Why have we stopped? Who in their right mind stands in front to stop a funeral procession? What kind of man plays the game of chicken with the grieving? But you see, Jesus wasn't playing a game. 
No, he was grieving too. Because Jesus knows even better than anyone else there that this was never the way that it was supposed to be. And as Jesus sees this widow who has just lost her only son, Luke tells us, Jesus' heart went out to her. Which makes for a really nice English translation. Because we say cheesy things like this, don't we? But that's not really what Luke said. No, Luke tells us that when Jesus sees this grieving mother, that it felt to Jesus like his insides were just spilling out on the ground in front of her. Luke said it's like all of the center of every single emotion that Jesus had was just being ripped in half. Jesus was so moved and so overwhelmed and was filled with such compassion for this woman that Luke describes the feeling of Jesus in that moment unlike any other moment in the whole Gospel of Luke. So great did he hurt for this mother. Despite the fact that this woman is probably surrounded by more people than she ever had been in her entire life, yet she never felt more alone. And yet it was into this woman's pain and into her darkness and into her grief that Jesus enters to have a word with death. <clears throat> but his first word is for the living, for the grieving, for the one who mourns death. His first word is for this mother. But what will Jesus say? I'm sorry for your loss. Let me know if you need anything. No. Jesus says something equally ridiculous. Jesus says, don't cry. Are you kidding me? That's what you had to stop this whole funeral procession just to say? I could have come up with that. This is what you want to tell people when they're crying. Don't cry. It'll get better. But we don't say it because it seems like such a, I don't know, an insensitive and obtuse thing to say. So we don't. But Jesus does. Of course she's crying. She should be. Everything she loved is in that box, and now it's about to be put into the ground. And yet, do you know who did not think those words from Jesus were ridiculous? The widow. Though her eyesight was distorted by her tears, she could see well enough to know that these weren't just some throwaway words by Jesus. It wasn't him just trying, grasping for something to say to break the awkward silence. No, Jesus genuinely meant it. 
She could tell that this man's anguish somehow, inexplicably matched, maybe even surpassed her own. It was almost like he was just as deeply hurt over her son's death as she was. She looked up and she saw Jesus bearing the full weight of her son's death, and yet it did not crush him into despair. Though he grieved, he was not without hope. She could hear it in the way he said it. It was like he knew something that she didn't. That he was filled with so much strength, such, such gentle power, that it inspired her to trust his words no matter how impossible they sounded in that moment. Then Jesus moved to the coffin. And he ran his hand down the side of it like a carpenter feeling a new piece of wood, knowing that he was about to turn it into something newer and more beautiful. And Jesus spoke his second word. And his second word is for the dead which for many reasons seems even more ridiculous than to tell a grieving mother to stop crying, but he said it anyway. Jesus said, young man, I say to you, get up. And he didn't shout it like a doctor trying to communicate with a man who was hard of hearing. He didn't do it with all this fanfare like a magician pulling off a trick. He almost seems to whisper it. Like Jesus and this dead man were the only two ones there. Like a friend leaning over, speaking a word of encouragement to another friend, encouraging him to fight, encouraging him to keep going, to get up. Can you imagine the silence? Thousands upon thousands of people, but no one was daring to say a word. They were waiting to see what would happen, and then it did. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And notice that Luke doesn't say the young man got up. Notice he doesn't say that the, the son of this widow began to talk. No, he said the dead man got up and immediately started talking. This wasn't a resurrection by degrees, meaning this wasn't a resurrection that left the young man still sort of warming up his engine like on a cold day to get going. He wasn't groggy and trying to get his wits about him like he had just woken up from a multiple-day coma. No, Luke, who records this, is a doctor. And the doctor, Luke, wants you and me to know that not only has Jesus done the impossible, he's raised a dead man back to life. He wants you to know that Jesus raised him perfectly and instantaneously. Jesus raised this man, but he wasn't done. Next comes what I think is arguably the most hopeful part 
the best part of the story. I love this. Jesus doesn't just intend to awaken us someday to a resurrection of our own. He promises to do that, but not just that. He doesn't promise just to wake us up for ourselves. No, His goal isn't to have us live forever alone. No, the dead man gets up, and then Jesus gave him back to his mother. Isn't that the best? Can you picture this, moms? Almost as if to say, here you go, ma'am. I think you lost something. I think this scene right here just might be the whole point. Not just the resurrection, but what comes after that. Bodily life together. The incomprehensible joy of that. The lasting nature of that. The harmony and healing of that. This is why St. Paul said, In Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So in the resurrection, Jesus will give us back to each other. We'll bring the many parts back together. You see, this is why Jesus approached this grieving mother first. This is why this matters, not just on your deathbed, but right here and now. Because Jesus has a word for the living it's why Jesus wasn't done with this family after he raised the son. He was only done after he put that young man back into the arms of his mother. And this isn't just their story. This widow and her son. None of the characters are named in this account. In other resurrection accounts, the, the names are there. Jairus' daughter, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, but, but here, none. And it's not because this account didn't really happen, and it's not because these people aren't real. It really did, and they really are. It's just that the personal knowledge of who they are is so secondary to what this account means to you and me. And do you know what that is? It means that we have our Lord. This isn't just the story about some first century young man named Tom and his mom named, named Diane who have their guy. Who found their guy to give them hope and to give them life. No, we have our guy, our Lord, our Christ. We have the Lord who entered into human history, who entered into every single human story to not just look at corpses, but to speak a word to those corpses and to give them life. Real life, lasting life, forever life. 
This is the Lord who doesn't just promise people a new lease on life, but a new life altogether. A resurrected life, a glorified life that goes on and on without end. And this promise of future life, of resurrected reunions, it gives us every reason to engage life right here and now. Because you know what the very next thing that happens in Luke's Gospel? John the Baptist is arrested and thrown into jail. And while he's sitting there in prison, John starts to struggle. He starts to wrestle. He starts to have doubts. He starts to wonder if this really is our guy, if this really is the Christ, then why is this happening to me? And so Jesus gives him a word. He sends a message to John and here's what he said. Tell John, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are healed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. This is how you get through it, John. This is how you do life when life gets really hard. You know that your Lord is the one who raises the dead. Jesus stops the procession of death dead in its tracks. And maybe without realizing it, the people who witnessed the scene got that. Did you hear what they said? God has come to help His people. You know, it feels like, and we tend to think, don't we, that God is so distant from us in death that we're all alone, that the Lord has departed from us to suffer and carry the weight of loss on our own, but nothing is farther from the truth. Jesus suffers your pain. He cries your tears. He dies your death. And then He comes back from it to comfort you in knowing that even in death, especially in death, God comes. He comes to help His people. He comes to help you, to heal you, to give you a word to say in the face of death. And so for those of you who are mourning or grieving, Jesus says, don't cry. Not because it's wrong to cry or to be sad. Not because you shouldn't mourn or grieve, but because we don't grieve like the rest of people who have no hope. We cry because we also know now that it was not supposed to be like this. But in those tears, there's hope. There's hidden, maybe even buried joy because we know that one day it won't be like this. Jesus comes now through His powerful Word with His life-giving promises and He wipes away your tears. And He points ahead to the day when He will wipe them away for the very last time. And when He does, and... He will speak the final word over your death. 
Young man, young woman, I say to you, get up. And you will. And nothing will become something. Something new and something beautiful. And He will give you back to your family, to the family of believers, to the body of Christ who was dead and behold is alive forever. I wish I had something to say. In Christ you do. You have the best thing to say. Jesus lives. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It's gone. Because Jesus lives. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Alleluia and Amen.